Greetings, my friend, and welcome to Beyond Curious, conversations with brave adventurers like yourself that are taking voyages into the unknown to satisfy their curiosity, fulfill their purpose, and bring their ideas to life. My name is Brandon Fong, and I am so excited to have you here, whether you are a first-time listener or a seasoned listener coming back week after week. Man, I am just so grateful for you to constantly invest in yourself every single week to be here, and I'm also beyond excited to introduce you to today's guest, Ben Gutman. But the real constraint is when they say, let's do it again, and they, his publisher then bets him $50 that he can't write a book with just 50 words in it. It was a bad bet. Dr. Seuss goes back, has 50 words, comes, puts together a book called Green Eggs and Ham, which became his best-selling book, 20 million copies sold. I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like Green Eggs and Ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. I'm getting really good at reading some children's books uh, just because I do it every single night for Kaya. And uh, my wife will tell you differently, though, because I can never manage to read things like Green Eggs and Ham. I always flub up the words. But anyways, I did not know Green Eggs and Ham was only written with 50 words off of a bet. So yeah, there's just a little teaser about what you're going to learn in today's episode. But I digress. Let me tell you a little bit about today's incredible guest, Ben Gutman. Ben is a marketing and communications expert and the author of Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. He is an experienced marketing executive and educator on a mission to get leaders to more effectively connect by simplifying their message. Ben is former co-founder and managing partner at Digital Natives Group, an award-winning agency that worked with the NFL, I Love New York, Comcast, NBC Universal, Hachette Book Group, The Nature Conservancy, and other major clients. Currently, Ben teaches digital marketing at Baroque College in New York City and consults with a range of thought leaders, venture-backed startups, and other brands. There is so much to look forward to in today's episode, but... As always, I would love for you to look out for three specific things. Number one, what that strange bet was that was given to Dr. Seuss that led to creating Cat in the Hat and Green Eggs and Ham and what that has to do with making your messages more powerful. I'm realizing recording this right now, I might have given that away in the quote. But anyways, that is a really cool thing to look forward to in this episode. Number two, how to use the drill build method to create messages that cut through the noise and resonates with people on an emotional level. And number three, what creating simple and effective messages has to to do with fluency. I was really excited when I saw Ben's book, Simply Put, because I believe my purpose is to create a more deeply connected world. And I had never really thought about how learning how to effectively connect has to do with creating clear and simple messages. So it was fun diving into Ben's content on how we can do that. And of course, that's what we're talking about in today's episode. So if you are somebody who is interested about learning how to enhance your communication messages and connect deeper with others and want to hear some fun and exciting stories along the way, this is a fun episode for you. So without any further ado, here is my friend, Ben Gutman. Mr. Ben Gutman, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. Thanks for having me, Brandon. It's great to be here. Of course. So man, I'm so excited because I just finished reading Simply Put last night and there's it's such a need for this. And as I was kind of reflecting on it, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but I believe my purpose is to create a more deeply connected world. And I love how you made the kind of correlation between connection and simplicity of your messages. So I'm super excited to dive into all the content of your book. But as usual, I'd love to start a little bit more about 
the human that's in front of me now so that people can kind of get a little bit of context before we dive into some of the content. So I know you had an incredible professor that believed in you early on. So I'll read this, this little clip here that I pulled from your site that I thought was super cool. It says, in 2011, shortly after graduating college, a few friends and I piled into my beat up 94 Honda Accord and we headed out to the city. We pulled up to the office to an old professor's business, slapped our logo on a basement wall and opened up our marketing agency. So <laughs> I thought this was a cool place to start because you're a professor now. You've been on both sides of the equation. You had somebody believe in you earlier. And now you're you're pouring into students. So we'd love to maybe share a little bit about that relationship with that professor and how he ended up giving you that opportunity to open up in his basement. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a great one. So and and I by the way still keep in touch with him. We have lunch all the time. When I did my book launch at Baruch College, which is where I went and now I teach, he was there as kind of my fireside chat companion for the event that we had. So I'm, I'm great. I'm super His name is Steve Gold. He's awesome. He's been in marketing and advertising forever. And he also went to Baruch College. So Baruch, by the way, is part of the City University of New York. It is, uh, I, I'm a big CUNY stan because I believe my wife went to Baruch. My wife went to Baruch. My parents went to Queens College. And, you know, now I teach there. And all my friends are from Baruch. It's a really wonderful experience because it's like the biggest engine of social mobility and economic opportunity in the country. I can I can wax poetic about how great CUNY is for the whole podcast if we want. But for now, I'll go back to Steve. And you know, we he he taught one of the most popular marketing classes at Baruch when I was there. I was really kind of heads down doing student government stuff because I was president of, of what was called USG. At the time, I was the big kind of student government dork. And that was taking up most of my time. I didn't do the like internships and all those other things that my peers were doing. And so I was really grateful when, you know, he kind of pulled me aside one day and said, you know, I know you kind of want to start something. You know, we need some help with digital. Maybe we could figure something out. And so, as you mentioned, we hopped in the 94 Accord. We drove out of the city and, you know, we worked with them for a year. We we set up shop in their agency's basement. But the thing is, they worked with all these like big shot companies, Fortune 500 brands, all these other great, these these great clients. And we were a bunch of knuckleheads. We were like 22 years old. We didn't know what we were doing. So fortunately, we kind of had the opportunity to cut our teeth on like the local ice cream shop, the local camera shop. And bit by bit, started to build our own portfolio of work, which, you know, 10 years later included stuff like the NFL and Comcast and all the other great companies. I love that. That's amazing. Well, let's unpack a little bit more of that journey. There are a few things that I saw that just kind of stood out to me in both your your book and then also reading a little bit of the other stuff you have online. But the, one of the philosophies that you had that I think kind of propelled your growth and the relationships that you bit, built was something that you call happy warriors. So talk to talk to us a little bit about happy warriors and and why that was important for you. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So happy warrior is is not my phrase. I mean, it's something that's been around in literature and poetry and whatnot forever. It, it's basically, you know, how do you kind of face adversity? How do you face challenges? How do you do hard work? But, you know, for lack of a better term, with a smile on your face, right? You know, kind of with, with a sense of mission, a sense of pride, a, a sense of optimism. And so when we were talking with my partners early on about how, what kind of employees do we want to have? What kind of team do we want to have? That was a word that kept on or phrase that kept on coming back to us was that we wanted the team of happy warriors. That was, that was who we looked for when we were hiring was that people who could, because it's in, in a small business, you, you need people who can, who can kind of play jazz with their work, right? People who can face an unexpected bump in the road, deal with a client that might have a problem, you know, deal with, 
the toilet being clogged, like all the little things <laughs> that happen in, in a small business and, and deal with it with, you know, with grace and with skill and with optimism. And that's embodied in that, in that term, happy warriors. And so I, I still, whenever I'm building a team, working with people that that's the type of person that I look for whenever I can. How do you balance? I know you, I'm going to be interested to ask you about this. Like, how do you balance the weight of being a happy warrior versus like the technical skill set on a team? Like what, what kind of in your mind when you're doing the calculation about working with someone, whether bringing on, because I'm assuming you kind of want the happy warrior philosophy to be internal, but also you want to be working with happy warrior clients that are flexible mm -hmm. and kind of represent that. Maybe talk a little bit about when you meet someone and you, when you're building your teams and your client base, how that kind of factored in, whether it was more important for you to kind of make sure there was a alignment on the technical side or the, the core value alignment with the happy warrior component of it? Well, one thing that I would say about your clients in particular is you spend a lot of time with the people you work with, right? It, it is both, you know, your team members, but your clients and your vendors and, and your partners. And it's important that you like them. It's important that you can trust them, that you enjoy the time you're spending with them. And one thing that was always valuable for us was we were really good at least with the small group. And then as we got bigger, it became more intentional of, of finding people that were really kind of just friendly and happy warriors that were enjoyable to be around. Because it really, every now and then we would miss the mark. We would hire somebody and, or we would sign a contract to somebody that they were kind of a jerk, you know, or, or just they kind of brought the energy down. And I have found that most technical skills are somewhat fungible. I mean, there's there are people that are completely you know, like the 10x engineer, all those type of things that, that it's a little bit harder to kind of replace. But most people are ultimately in terms of their, you know, writing ability, design ability, programming ability, the, the, the quote unquote hard skills, they're kind of replaceable. You can't replace the personality though. And so if you have somebody that's a really great like writer, but they are destroying the vibe of the company, they're destroying the energy that you that in the office, and they're bringing other people down. It doesn't matter how good they are. It's time for you to to part ways and, and to, you know, find somebody that's going to bring a better energy into the work. I love that. And I feel like it directly correlates into your work with Simply Put, because obviously, it is my belief that the language that we use shapes our reality, whether it's our internal dialogue or our external dialogue. And I've just found for me that as I've gotten clear on clear on the kind of people I want to surround myself and the people with and the people that I want to serve as well, those soft components are super important because as you craft your messaging, as you have conversations with people, even if it's not like formal messaging on a website, those things are all critically important to like building a life in alignment with the people on all aspects of your life. So I love that that was such a central component mm -hmm. of, of your growth, everything that you did. So Ben, and you want, you want to yeah, hear one other thing on that yeah, too, please. which is uh, we had kind of our internal goal when we worked with clients was, you know, we would want to be really good at what we did, obviously, but the the kind of secret goal was we wanted to be that client's favorite meeting of the week. You know, th they might have a dozen meetings with vendors and and other and and whoever else. And we wanted the one that when they when digital natives, our old company, when that came up on their calendar, that they went, I'm excited to talk to those guys. Like that mm. that was that was one of our driving forces in in terms of you know how we shape these relationships.
Mm. Okay. I wasn't planning on going here, but this, this tickles my brain because I listened to another episode where you were talking about Neil Gaiman and an insight that he gave you on an, a commencement speech about the three characteristics of, of someone. So I feel like that what you spoke to is kind of one of those, but I think this is a really powerful concept that might be valuable for some people. Oh yeah. And he, Neil Gaiman, uh, author, comic artist. I, you know, he's also just a cool dude. I, I've tweeted back and forth from him in, in, in the past. So he gave this commencement speech about a decade or so ago. And the advice was for writers, but it applies to really any sort of creative work or even client services. And he said, there's three things you can be. You can be on time, you can be good, or you can be a pleasure to work with. And the secret is you only actually need to be two of them. So if you're on time and you're good, people will put up with an asshole. If you're <laughs> on time and you're a pleasure to work with, people will put up with things that are maybe not that great. And if you're a pleasure to work with and you do great work, well, people will excuse things being late a little bit. And it's not that you know you ever want to do bad work or you ever want to miss a deadline. But if you are really good at that first one, which is like being a pleasure to work with, you you get this grace in these relationships that you wouldn't have otherwise, right? And so because sometimes things happen, right? Sometimes things miss a mark. Sometimes you get busy and and you know disaster strikes or whatever and you miss a deadline but if you're if people if they the client generally genuinely likes you they'll be okay with that or they'll, they'll give you a little bit of of leeway on those type of those type of circumstances i love that and to me i guess simply put kind of solves for two of those components it doesn't really you don't really talk about the time component of it but if you are using the right clear messaging that is connecting with people and serving them you create a better experience for people and build those relationships at the same time that you do better work because you're clear on it so I, I would love to start talking about some of the components simply put and i <laughs> i think a fun place to start here would be it's going to be a total non sequitur but i think this will go somewhere why did you start flossing ben would you mind talk to us about why you started flossing and and you mentioned it a little a few times in the book but share about that <laughs> and how that's been put <laughs> so i i've had i've had terrible luck of my teeth. I blame my parents, the genetics. Not there <laughs> and so I, in one of my, you know, painful visits to the dentist, as I'm sitting there and he's plucking away and, and causing all sorts of agony, he tells me, you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And I'm like, oh man, you got me. Like that is exactly <laughs> what I needed to hear. He didn't say, well, you know, you used to floss below the gum line to prevent plaque buildup. Didn't didn't go into that. He said, you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And all of a sudden, I began flossing every single night since then a few years ago. It's made an improvement, still have the bad genetics on that on that side of things. But the the point there is that is, you know, I, I'm my background is in marketing, this book will live on the marketing shelf. But this is something these are lessons, these are this is research, these are ideas that will be valuable, no matter kind of what you know, what, what domain you're in uh, and that dental, that dental insight there is a perfect example. Yeah. But also like, just, I mean, maybe, maybe we'll set some of the foundational principles inside of simply put, like, I would love to kind of hear some context as to like, why of all the books that you could have chosen to write at, at, of your career of working for 10 years as a marketer, there's many different angles you could have gone, but you chose to write simply put. So we'll start there. And then I want to kind of maybe dive into some of the foundational principles of the book, because I think this is really powerful. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, I, I don't recommend anybody else write this type of book. because <laughs> The the problem of writing a book about simplicity is several things are going to happen. One is people are going to say, shouldn't that just be a paragraph? And <laughs> yeah, and so 
on the first page of the book and the preface, I, I address that. I say, I fully understand the irony here, which is that it's a 208 page book about how to say things simply. It seems like I take my own advice. But there's a surprisingly deep why and a surprisingly hard how in terms of in terms of putting those two pieces together, which explains the other 207 pages. That's one thing. The other thing is when you write a book about communication and clarity, people will judge every single thing you ever do for the rest of your life based off of that. Is it simple? But the cover had to be perfect. The title had to be perfect. The back, the jacket description, the website, social media post. If I am not following my own principles here, well, then why should you believe me in some of this stuff? So I, you know, this is definitely a book that like you should judge by its cover. Like that is exactly uh, true. So that being out of the way, why is this the book that I wanted to write? I didn't know those things beforehand. Now I get into it. And I realized those... <laughs> you had to love your whole game yeah. now. It's a, you were under a microscope. <laughs> so, so this book, so what, you, what do you hire a marketing agency to do? It's because you have something you want to tell the world and you need help doing it, right? You have a thing inside, inside your head of, or inside your company that you want to get out there. And when you're in the process of marketing, when you're in the, the trenches as an agency, you kind of just do things and you know what you're doing and you intuitively figure it out. And maybe you do some research, this and that. But it's it's hard to kind of see the forest for the trees and understand the why that these things work. And, and, and that led to the kind of research question at the core of the book, which is why do some messages work and others don't, right? Like why does some ads sell a bunch of stuff? Why do some political slogans move, you know, move the masses? Why do some emails and proposals and warnings and you know, websites and whatever, why do those convert and others and others kind of fall flat? And that's that's what I looked to answer. And I I came across a ton of interesting stuff uh, in the process. Mm, love that. So let's kind of lay the foundation because I picked out some of my favorite takeaways where I'm like, ooh, I need to make sure that I'm implementing this, like replacing and with so and, you know, thinking about different containers that we can do and the, the drill build method. So we'll see. We'll see how much we can get into some of that. But I think yeah. an interesting thing to talk about kind of as a, as a foundational thing is I never really considered it this way. But you talk a lot about the correlation between simplicity and fluency and how the the dynamic of being the sender and the receiver of message has a lot to do with fluency. So I'd love for you to maybe share that a little bit. Yeah. So you mentioned the word fluency. That is the kind of foundational piece behind why all of this works. So the word fluency, you and I know it, right? You can be fluent in English or Spanish or Mandarin. You can be fluent in in cooking or in, in motorcycles or in whatever you know TV show you're watching. Where you're fluent, things are easy. The Latin root for the word is flowing. I mean, that's that's what it feels like, right? When something is fluent, well, it's easy to take from, from here and stick in here and you're good. And what a cognitive scientist will say about the word fluency, though, is a little is related, but a little bit different, which is how easy is it to take something from out in the world, stick it in your head and make sense of it? And the easier, the less kind of sweat it takes to perceive and to process something. Well, it turns out that we're more likely to like it, more likely to buy it, more likely to trust it. All the things that are good, right? All the things we want when we're informing or persuading, when when we're fluent, we're predisposed to those things. But the flip side of that is also true, right? So when things take a lot of work, a lot of sweat, mental processing power, all those, all those, you know, kind of 
effortful task, well, we're less likely to like it, less likely to trust it, and less likely to buy it, which is not what we want to do when we're in a marketing situation or any other sort of leadership position. So that's that's where we want to be as receivers is, is on the fluent end of the spectrum, where things are easy, where things are simple. However, the gap that that causes the problem in most of our communication is that we're pulled to the other side. You know, internally in our own heads, we're, we're subject to what's known as an additive bias, where we we go and, and when we're asked to change something or to improve something, we're more likely to add than we are to subtract. And then externally, we're also influenced by the people around us, the systems around us, the environments around us that are all usually incentivized for the more. And then frankly, kind of between the two of them is that it's really easy. It's it's It takes a lot of bravery and, and confidence to be simple a lot of times. And often we're just kind of in that job interview or whatever it is. And we're saying, let's just throw a bunch of words against the wall and hope we can kind of get out of that, get, get out of the question here, get out of the, this alive. And so that's how we end up with this gap. We are pulled towards complicated as a sender, but as a receiver, what we want is to have something that's simple. Hmm. I love that. And you can like, you could definitely hide it behind complexity. I think, I, I don't know if you quoted this in your book, but I've definitely heard this a, a long time. It's like, I forgot who wrote it. It's like, I didn't have time to write a short letter. So I wrote a long one. <laughs> oh yeah. You're you're right. It, it requires you to be bold and figure out what the heck you're saying. And the it, it requires so much thought on the giver of the message to make sure that you are serving the person receiving it and putting it in a way. And there's so much that goes into that. So why don't you, Ben, maybe I think it would help if you kind of gave a flyby of kind of the core components that go into designing simplicity and then maybe we can kind of drill into some of your favorites and kind of go from there oh yeah certainly so by the way that quote is one of those things that's often misattributed to mark twain just like pretty much every quote everyone <laughs> yeah it's like mark twain abraham lincoln winston churchill and like albert einstein like right. <laughs> if, you, if you don't know who it's from just give it to give it to one of those guys but that's yeah that's a great one right which is that simple means easy in terms of processing, but it doesn't necessarily mean easy in terms of production. So, yeah. so you were saying these design parts there, that's the second half of the book and the second half of the equation, which is, well, we have the why communication is challenging, but how do we, how do we bridge that gap? And so my background is as a designer, actually, that's my functional background. And so we look and say, well, this is a design problem. How do we arrange things in the world to solve a goal? And the goal is to bring those pieces together. Well, when you look at the research, when you look at, at the history and case studies, we can identify five design principles that will help get us, you know, get those two sides closer together. So the first one is beneficial. What does it matter to the receiver? What's in it for them? The second one is focused. Are you trying to say one thing or multiple things at once? The third is salient. Does your message stand out from the crowd? Is it, does it, have contrast? Is it, is it noticeable? The fourth is empathetic. Are you speaking in a language that the audience understands? You know, both in terms of their actual language, but also motivations, emotions. And then lastly, it's minimal, which is, have you cut out everything that isn't important and left what is, left what is necessary? And this isn't a step-by-step -step plan. This isn't a rubric. This isn't a schedule. But their design principles, the more we can kind of look to them, the better we can we can bridge that gap and the better we can inform, persuade, and communicate in, in all their different ways. 
Yeah, I love that. Thank you for the 30,000 foot flyby. I think that just kind of helps set the foundation for everyone. So if you were on a treadmill, if you were washing dishes, if you are, you know, have your attention all over the place, I was taking notes for you. We have beneficial, we have focused, we have salient, empathetic, and minimal. And obviously those are just titles, right? So let's let's work for the rest of this interview to maybe bring some of those to life with some concrete ways that we can help support people. So I, I think a really foundational one that I, I've heard so much, but it's one of those things where it's like, you need to, you can't, it's easy to understand, but it's, it's also easy to forget when you're trying to communicate. And I know you talk about this a lot with your, with your students, but talk to us a little bit about why Americans actually spent $10 billion worth of power drills in, in whatever, whatever year it was. <laughs> oh yeah. So you're referencing the first one, which is beneficial. And I'll say I, I lied a little bit. So this one is the most important. If you're asking me saying, which is the one, because, and, and so we start with this because it's so foundational that it it will color all the other things that you do. And I also, part of that lie is that the last one, minimal, is also at the end on purpose, because it's, you know, First it's hard last. to know what everything <laughs> you need is unless you've gone through and evaluated these other pieces. So that being said, there is one sentence that I tell my students every year, and I can't take credit for it. It's Theodore Levitt, a Harvard professor from the 60s. It's his line. And I tell the students, listen, if you forget everything else that we talked about in this course, if you completely black out every other piece of information you've gotten from this whole degree, if you remember this, you're going to be ahead of most other people in marketing or sales or leadership or whatever other role you take on. And it goes, people don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. People don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. They don't want the thing, they want what the thing does for them. And this goes back to if you've ever been in marketing or sales, you might have had kind of beaten into your head features versus benefits. We don't buy features, we buy the benefits. We don't buy, you know, this the heated seat we buy that our, our butt stays warm, right? That that's actually what we're what we're looking to get to as part of our decision making process. And I would argue also, by the way, that that's not even the first, that's not even it. So we don't want the drill. We don't want even the hole in the wall. What we want is the picture of our family up in the hallway. And what we actually want is the, if you look at kind of the Maslow's motivations there, we want the feelings of love and belonging, right? We want to be reminded of our family. That's ultimately what we want when we're talking about buying a drill. And so when you can figure out how to get to benefits instead of just features, you're going to be in a position where you can really connect with, with why people are doing the things that they do. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think an important thing that you just said there too, about hanging pictures on your wall, I think that also comes with a nuance of understanding the audience that you're serving really specifically, because maybe you are a Let's say for, I don't, I've never even thought about this. Let's say you have a drill company, but you're specifically focused on serving women that are, that are drilling, right? Like maybe that insight would help you to understand that maybe women that are creating more drills are more family oriented than a guy that is getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go on a construction site and understand like the yeah. different things there. But I think that that nuance is really, really important to go down to that emotional driving layer behind all of it. So so what, Ben? Talk to us a little bit about so what and how that how that helps with the with the whole. Oh yeah, and and what what you were referencing, I think, is also important because it's about knowing your audience and understanding the situation and investing accordingly. And so let's figure out how we do that. So the the key to figuring out benefits is a very easy question, which is so what, so what? Yeah, uh, let's let's talk about. I mentioned the drill before. Let's talk about something like toothpaste. 
mentioned already dental hygiene before. So toothpaste might have a mint flavor. That's the feature that exists in the real world. You, you taste it, you know, other features you might see or hear or smell or touch. Toothpaste is mint flavor, but that's not why we buy toothpaste. So mint flavor. So what? Well, that means I'm going to have fresh breath. Okay, great. That's getting a little bit closer. We can call that the functional benefit. That's the thing that changes in the real world. We can see the tangible difference between us having fresh breath and not. Okay. Fresh breath is not actually why I want to buy toothpaste though. Why I want mint flavor. So what? Okay. So mint flavor. So what? Fresh breath. So what? Well, it's because I actually want to have a more successful date tonight. Right. And then, and so that's what we'll call the emotional benefit, which is, it is the next level down. Now we start to understand a little bit of, okay, well, I can tie in the mint flavor all the way down to having a good date. And then I can ask that one more time and say, well, so what? Well, that might be a love and belonging need. That might be a physiological need that you have. And all of a sudden, you can go from this thing that feels very trivial to something that is this foundational motivation. And that's by drilling down and asking, so what? And then when we turn around and say, well, let's make the ad for that toothpaste. Let's make the website for that toothpaste. We can turn around and say, okay, well, the motivation, we can help that use that to determine what our direction might be for it, to put us in the right headspace. And then we say, okay, that emotional benefit will start building back up. Emotional benefit, that might be the headline or the hook or the, you know, the, the first slide or the subject line of our email. And then you say, okay, well, the functional benefit, the fresh breath, well, that might be the next headline. That might be the first paragraph. That might be the first line. And then eventually you get back up to the top. You get back to function to, to features. At some point, you're going to need to talk about the features, right? Talk about the mint flavor and you know how many how many ounces are in the tube and all those different things. But this way, instead of orienting our conversation from the features inward, we're able to talk from the benefits outward, and we're able to actually resonate with you know, why people are making these decisions. I love that. And I would obviously highly recommend everyone go grab a copy of Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. For me, I literally grabbed what you just said there. I grabbed a screenshot of the, the graphic that you have inside of the book on this section because it's super powerful just to kind of go from, I think you call this the drill build method where it's like you go down and then you build back up. I know it's kind of hard to maybe visualize in your head, but if you kind of hit that back skip button 30, 60 seconds and re-listen to Ben going through that process. And again, think about how much work is going into create something that is simple and easily digestible, right? We kind of take it for granted when we have a message that is easily received, but chances are there was a lot that went behind all of that to make it really, really clear for you to be able to have inside of your brain. So I'm I'm curious, Ben, kind of like on, on this topic, we have like Simon Sinek is really big for the whole start with why component of it. Like, have you kind of like, like, what is the, is there a difference between what he's saying and the whole start with why and where the communication happens and the drill build method? Have you kind of thought about that correlation before? Oh, they're definitely related. It's not the same thing, but they're definitely related, right? So Sinek's work is great. He's, a, he's by the way, his background is in marketing. It, the, he does, doesn't talk about it as much anymore, but you know, he was at ad agencies and, and that's where a lot of his work initially comes from. And, and so it is related, right? It, it, there's certainly a parallel for saying, okay, well, the, his, the golden circle for anybody not aware of it is why to the how to the what, right? They're the best leaders, the best brands start with why, and then they talk about the how, and then they talk about the what. It's certainly, it's certainly a rhyming piece of this, but this is a little bit about less about kind of 
like mission and more about, well, what's, what's the benefit? It's more kind of audience focused than it is kind of sender focused. Yeah. I love that. I, I do. I, so I had this in the note, I'm kind of jumping between some of the different components of your book, but I had, I had, well, let me, let me summarize something. Cause that was, that was really powerful for me when I read this last section that I'll jump to the next part. But like one thing that kind of came as a light bulb for me is I reread this section where you talked about the drill bid method, build method. And the, so what is like, no duh that we we naturally want to describe the benefits or the, the features because that's like what our natural senses are like you look at anything that like you can see touch feel like that's how you describe it so like we're wired to say about the thing when no one really cares about the feature of the drill and the horse the 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 torque and all that kind of stuff that goes inside of it when in reality that's the that's our gut instinct is like if we're trying to sell something that's what we need but it's really important to like maybe almost leverage that as a trigger like oh am i am i observing something that i can see here feel a touch and if i'm trying to describe that there's a chance that not that that you shouldn't ever describe that it's ever it's important, but like when you're communicating that message, making sure that you're doing the work to set it up to, so that when they arrive at those features and benefits, mm-hmm. that it is it is tapping into something deeper with them. So, anyways, just wanted to make sure I shared that because that was that was powerful for me. But going back to the why component of this, I know we're kind of skipping later in your book, but one of the things that I thought was super cool is when you kind of deconstructed, you gave different references to political campaigns about like the importance of a campaign slogan and how that literally can shift shift the game and you you said i highlighted this in the book the most valuable gift that you can give your audience is a reason to choose you that they can pair it back to themselves and others so maybe talk to a little bit about that component of the why and like what it takes to maybe distill a message down to that component so that other people can tell others about it Oh yeah, so that that bit is from the the last bit there in minimal, which the subtitle of that chapter is "Say shit without the bullshit," right? Yeah. And so the, <laughs> some of the campaigns you're referencing is you know, regardless of of, of the politics, and, and mine are pretty transparent, if you <laughs> to be honest. But uh, if you look back in in 2016, everybody you know was saying this is the most fearsome Republican primary of all time. We have these governors and senators, and we have these people representing demographic and and, uh, geographic uh, strengths and shifts that are going to be so formidable. Democrats can't win. And then this guy, Donald Trump comes on and, you know, it's a very historically loaded sentence, but he goes out and says, make America great again. Right. It's, it's, It's a complete sentence. It's a complete idea. And when you contrast that with what somebody like Marco Rubio was talking about, where he said, I think it was like leadership for a new American century or like Jeb Bush, who, you know, was the son of a president, brother of another one. He, his kid slogan was just Jeb, like with an exclamation point. <laughs> the, the, if somebody was asking you, well, why do you support Marco Rubio? And no human being on earth has ever said earnestly, well, he's leadership for a new American century. That's not <laughs> how people talk. That's not how we work. But if you ask somebody why they voted for Donald Trump, they have printed in, you know, 72 point times Roman on their hats, they says, well, make America great again. They have a full, complete sentence that answers, well, why do you vote for that person? And the same thing happened in the general election. Well, Hillary Clinton, Kareen from I'm with her and love Trump's hate and a few other, again, very pretty words. And this is what happens a lot is that a lot of times in advertising marketing, we get so caught up in like, oh, that word, those, that's a pretty sentence. That's a really, you know, beautiful headline in terms of the words that we have in there. But it doesn't mean anything. It's all bullshit. It's not the actual, it's not the meat. 
Barack Obama was good about it, you know, eight years prior, you know, change we can believe in. That was a, still a little bit pretty words, but Hillary connected to a very concrete desire, which is why are you voting for him? Well, because he's changed, right? As opposed to somebody making America great. People like to have reasons for the things that they do. They like to have reasons for who they vote for, for what they buy. Even if we don't always know what they are, we like to have something which we can say to ourselves what they are and say to others what they are. The word because is this really powerful magic word. And there's all sorts of research about that. And Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, has a whole piece on that. The, but but we, we love to hear reasoning. Our brain will connect words that are tied with the word because or the why even if they don't actually make sense when you interrogate them, we'll, we'll say, hey, you know what? That makes sense now. I, I get it. Uh, and so if we can give somebody in our messaging a concrete reason that they can, they can take with them as a souvenir, basically, for their decision-making, well, you're giving them a gift that's going to only, it's going to pay them back and pay you back many times over. Hmm. I love that. I, it's been a while since I've seen Cialdini stuff, but I think it's the study where he was talking about people skipping in line for like a, a fax machine or a copy machine and like think they literally could just say you know why do you need to skip and they would just say the word because and they would get significantly more compliance because they use the word because it's like oh okay oh, yeah. it's like a it's like a shortcut so i i love that and i, I do want to i'm going to use the word drill because we're talking about drills i want to drill down here a little bit more because i think it really helps people to get like a concrete example so this is also partially like a selfish ask because i i heard this and i was like oh my gosh like i need to get better at this so i find that people love different examples and so i know we don't have all the time in the world to to kind of zone in on this but but I thought it'd be fun for people that are listeners of Beyond Curious that it's like, if if I, I don't have it, why do you listen to Beyond Curious? Well, I have I have cool guests. I love the deep conversations. I do the research, but like, it's not much of an answer. So if, if you have a client or somebody that is looking at kind of getting that distilled, what are some ways that you would kind of guide someone to understanding how we can get that succinct reason that I can tell people that they should listen to the show or whatever it is for their brand? So the 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 business, like in the lingo for that in marketing is called positioning. Mm -hmm. positioning is is kind of what it sounds like where is your brand positioned in the, in the mind of the customer and it basically is kind of answering three questions the first and i by the way i you would be so surprised about how how few companies actually understand this and i'll sit down with like i'll sit down with big companies and people that have been there for decades and and i ask them a simple question well, why does somebody buy what you buy and they don't know they don't have like the the reasoning there because it's really easy to lose the forest for the trees and stuff mm -hmm. so positioning and there's there's lots of there's great books about positioning that i can point you to is basically this number one is who is your stuff for who's your audience who's your market who's your customer number two is what problem do they have that you solve what do they need? And then the third one is, well, why are you better than all the other ways to solve that problem? Why are you, you know, why are you, why do you have the advantage over the of the competition? You can put this all together in a positioning statement. You can you can workshop this and hire an agency and go work on it. But just interrogating yourself of those things will arm you with the raw material that you need in order to 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 put that type of you know why statement together. So let's layer this back to make America great again. So like, obviously, it's a campaign slogan. So that's kind of like alludes to the problem that he's solving, because he's alluding to the fact that America is not great, and he's making it better. So but like, I guess, from what those three things that you shared, 
who is it for? I guess it's for the American people, but why are mm-hmm. you better? doesn't necessarily get to that. So like, are there other components when you're coming across like a statement like that, where it's not necessary to make sure that it hits all of those, or I guess I'm just kind of curious to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily kind of like you, you answer one and then you fill in the blank. For sure. One <laughs> but it, it, when you answer those, you start to understand, okay, exactly who am I and what am I, what am I doing here you know, with, as a brand? And that, and that, you know, putting that stuff up on the board, you know, writing at the top, you know, top of your page there, it makes you, uh, it, it puts you in the right mindset to be able to come up with something like make America great again, or, or another slogan that does actually hit those notes. Cause you mentioned, you know, what problem do they have is this, they feel that America's not great and they think this is just the guy who's going to do it. So, you know, that, that begins to put you in that, in that direction. When we talk about minimal, a lot, the other big piece of this it's often cutting out a lot of the kind of like BS language, right? So the leadership for a new American century, well, what the hell does that mean? What, what is, what do you mean? <laughs> leadership is big amorphous kind of word that doesn't really hit anything. What does new American century mean? That, mm, like it, it's, it, it's already 16 years into it. You know, what's what at the time, what's going on? Those are words that become these like speed bumps. They become friction. And so every time there's a bit of friction in your messaging, well, it's another opportunity for somebody to just tune out and to pull off and, and go on an off-ramp to something else. The average American spends 13 hours a day consuming some form of media, right? That's a lot of time we spend kind of looking at screens and hearing things. There's so many opportunities for things, for the, for so many opportunities for us to place our attention on things that aren't your message. And if you give me something that isn't kind of the quote unquote BS free, something like the the leadership for new American century. Well, all of a sudden I'm saying, well, I, this doesn't mean anything to me. This isn't, this isn't for me. This doesn't solve my, my, my problem. And they're going to go pull off and go do something else. And so that that's why it's, it's so important to, uh, to get to like the minimum viable message and, and to speak in these like common denominator words as much as we can, because that will, that will ultimately you know, be what sticks in somebody's head as they're competing against all these other forces that want that attention. I love that. And it reminds me of another section of your book that I thought was obviously kind of jumping into the salient side of it, but you talk about three spheres to use the power of constraints to craft more salient messages. And we have space, time, and options. So I think what you're kind of alluding to here is more of, I think it's the the, the space one. So maybe I think we can kind of dive into this because I think this will expand the subject a little bit more, but talk to us a little bit about Dr. Seuss, because I thought this was really interesting. <laughs> oh yeah. So this is like the lead in story there. So, so Saliency is created. Saliency is when you notice something, right? When something rises to your attention. And I argue that it is best created when you're embracing constraints, embracing rules that others aren't. If you want to create contrast, create something that's different than what else is out there, well, you need to play by slightly different rules. So the story you're referencing is about 70 years ago, Life Magazine ran an article saying that kids can't read. Basically, readership is down, and part of the reason is because of all these really boring early early reader books, like Fun Fun of Dick and Jane, that type of stuff. And so, a publisher at Houghton Mifflin, they come to one of their authors and they say, you know, here's a list of 250 words we're going to draw. It. Can you write a book that includes just these 200 word 200 words and uh, and teaches people how to read in a way that they can't put down? They, they, they can't put it down. 
And that author's name was Theodore Geisel, who better known as Dr. Seuss. He comes back, he toils away for nine months, and he writes a book, which becomes known as The Cat in the Hat, with 236 different words, just using that small palette. And that's one example of this. But the real constraint is when they say, let's do it again. And they, they're, his publisher then bets him $50 that he can't write a book with just 50 words in it. It was a bad bet. Dr. Seuss goes back, has 50 words, comes, puts together a book called Green Eggs and Ham, which became his best-selling book, 20 million copies sold, top of all these different you know, reader lists. And then it clocks in at exactly 50 different words. And so by embracing this smaller palette, by embracing these constraints, he's able to do something to, to go into these kind of creative directions that you wouldn't be forced into if you had the entire dictionary at your disposal. Yeah. And it's so crazy too, because because in today's world that like this is being opened up with AI to make it like easier to ha create more, like putting those, being intentional about the kind of constraints that you're putting on are super powerful. And I even, one of the takeaways that I got from your book was like trying to use the thousand most frequently used words in the English language when crafting a message. And so one of the things I did kind of for fun this morning is I, I looked up those thousand words and then I, I put it into chat GPT. So you can get GPT four. And I said, here are the thousand most words. Here's, here's a sentence I'm trying to write, help me to write it using the thousand most frequently occurring words. So that's a little bit cheating because I'm using AI to like play within those constraints. I'm sure there's probably a benefit to you being toiling away <laughs> to add it to, to make sure that your, your message is super succinct. But I, I love thinking about constraints because i think it's very often that we think we want a life free of constraints right like we were just talking beforehand about like just had a kid you know like talk about like a, a way of having to rejig your life around it or like we want to have all the time in the world but it is actually these constraints that breed creativity that can create things like salient messages but you have to be intentional about mm -hmm. the containers that you're putting around them which is so cool oh yeah uh, and, and she mentioned the thousand most common words so there's a whole book written by Randall Monroe called Thing Explainer, which he uses just the thousand most commonly used words to explain all sorts of things like nuclear bombs and microwaves and I think the Supreme Court. And, and it's good. It is a very good job at explaining a lot of these. It's funny because the word 1000, by the way, the word 1000 is not one of the thousand most commonly used words. So it's the 10 hundred, right? The it, it's it's going to be something that's going to result in some weird stuff, but it's good as like a baseline test for saying, okay, how close can I get to this? Or can I get to this and then go up from there instead of starting with kind of these big, you know, big thick thesaurus of full of words and trying to and trying to pull different pieces apart. And by the way, you mentioned the, the GPT stuff. A friend of mine uh, who he's written a book and has a show too, he... When I when I shared my work with him, he put the the principles and then some of the research in this book into a GPT, and he used it to help him edit some of his work in terms of his emails that were going out. And the email that that had his original content got like X open rate or like X click through rates, whatever it is. And the one that was you know put through kind of the simply put AI, basically, it got fifty percent more, right? And so wow. it's. I was like, that's really cool. I'm going to quote that as much as I can, because, you know, it, it's it, when I was writing this book, when I, the first draft of it was, was due to the publisher around this time last year, the end of the year, we're talking in December, the, 
ChatGPT like just came out, right? And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like maybe I can help with some research and stuff. And it was really funky and didn't quite, you know, do any good for me in terms of the research stuff. But it's funny to see how quickly, how uh, not funny, but it's incredible to see how quickly things have evolved in, in just that 12 month span. Yeah, even even so, this is a selfish ask, but I'm I'm literally thinking about this for all the people that I'm interviewing. It's like with, and I'm gonna, it's again, anytime you talk about AI, you're time stamping it because it's like this is gonna be like if you listen to this three years from now, you're like, no shit. <laughs> but like, but like, I think that the new wave, it's like the the new future of content creation is you can't just put out a book anymore. You have to create a custom GPT for all the frameworks that are inside of your book. Cause it's like, I selfishly want Ben Gutman approved, and I would pay for a Ben Gutman approved GPT to simplify my messages and to make sure that it fits inside of these parameters. So yeah, I think anyone can take a book nowadays and create a framework around it and feed it into a GPT if you know what you're doing with custom prompting, but yeah, super, super good. So I, I, we've, we've covered a lot, Ben, I know we're kind of coming up on time. There's, there's one more in the empathetic section of creating effective messages that I think would be really good. And then we can kind of start wrapping things up a little bit, but designing a message with the language of the user in mind. Oh my gosh. It's just like a whole world, right? You could, you could, you could definitely write a whole book on each of these subsections that you created here, but would love to, for you to talk a little bit about this and, and maybe open by sharing a little bit about desire lines. Cause I had never heard about this and I thought it was really brilliant to see this as an example inside of the book. So there's a, this design principle called desire lines or desire paths, which you've definitely seen, right? Like, and if you've ever walked, you know, through a park and there's like a right angle, the sidewalk, and you see kind of the little dirt path full of footprint that's connecting, you know, one side to the other and kind of cutting off that corner, that's a desire line, right? I mean, there's all sorts of famous examples. I think it was the maybe University of Michigan that they they left their quad un, unpaved and they would they took like an aerial photo to see like where the students were walking across it and killing the grass and then that's where they built their paths because that's where people wanted to be um, and so when you're talking about uh, usability design desire lines basically tell you like what does a user want like what do they want and and when you talk about empathy well it's about meeting them where they are and this is not to say you know like you do a focus group and you listen 100% of what they say and they're going to tell you everything about where to go. It's like the old kind of, you know, faster car, faster horses versus cars type of thing. But it is important to whenever you're marketing or messaging is to test your audience, bring in somebody that isn't you, that isn't your team, that isn't in your bubble. We are, this is like a no duh thing. And there are so many like agencies and companies that they do market research and like, this is their jam. But it is also the thing that will be the most ignored piece of advice that I, I put in here because it is awkward. People don't like to go out and to test their stuff. Number one is the interaction with strangers can feel awkward. You stand on the street corner and try to flag people down and people don't like that. I, I did that. At, yeah, I remember doing that standing on the concourse at Grand Central Terminal, flagging people down and asking them questions about things. And so that is inherently an awkward position. But number two is, and more importantly, is you might get feedback that proves you wrong, that says, hey, I don't understand what the hell you're saying. I don't understand what, what you're getting at here, or I don't like your product, or I don't like whatever this is, your candidate or, or your cause. And well, you're going to have to go back to the drawing board a little bit if you start getting feedback that pushes you in that direction over and over. So 
it's it's vitally important, but it is something that we're going to get wrong. And and if, but if we get it right, it will it will unlock a whole bunch of other possibility for us. I love that. How so? How would you recommend? Let's say, and this is again partially selfish ask, but like let's say someone is interested in testing some of their ideas and making sure they're getting that feedback. Maybe not everyone's going to walk around Grand Central Station and say, I have this new idea I'm working on. Like, what do you think, stranger, about it? But like, you know, we can, there's so many different ways to test content nowadays if you just make simple posts on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever platform that is. So as somebody that has put together a book and spent a year thinking about this subject, maybe what are some of the ways that you have tested out your thought leadership before, you know, you made sure that the the right things and the right messaging was hitting inside of your book? How did you do that? Yeah, so a lot of that's really important. You mentioned the post on Facebook or LinkedIn and stuff. Uh, that's really good start if the audiences there represent who it is you want to talk to. Sure. If if my network is going to over-index in you know younger people who are digitally savvy who might work in marketing or or some other professional service, well, you know that actually might be relevant for my stuff because I'm talking I'm writing a book about that. But if I was launching a you know an app for senior citizens to to romantically connect. Well, that's not going to be the audience that I want to talk to, right? I want to go, hey, let's go to the nursing home. Let's go to, you know, the community center. Let's find people who are in the age demographic in the market that I'm looking for. That's much more relevant than me asking a bunch of like other 30 something year olds on, you know, Instagram, like, hey, what do you think of the senior citizen dating app, right? Like that's, uh, it's, it's a little bit, there's, there is an exact science. So I was going to say it's not an exact science. There are people out there who their whole job is like sampling and, and figuring the stuff out. And you've mentioned politics before and people in politics in pollsters, they, they do a lot of this stuff. But for most of what we do, we can be pretty inexact about it. And it still can be relevant. We don't need to talk to that many people to begin to see patterns. Of, okay, well, you know, if I'm designing this this uh, you know this app for accountants to better manage their like workflow or something i bet you if i talk to five accountants i'll have a good sense as to you know what what the the general use case is going to be if i go talk to 500 people who are painters i'll have no insight as to what as to what the, the experience is going to be so it's about trying to find an audience as close as possible or trying to find a test audience as close as possible to your real audience and then and then just being open and honest and and trying to to get what's locked in their head the value that they have and apply it to your problem. So on a similar kind of drilling I know the whole chapter on empathy you talk about welcoming the enlightened idiot which is <laughs> maybe you can color that cuz I think that that without a context is going to be like well that's interesting but like but is it is it accurate to say that when you're drilling down you want to look for that subsegment of your audience that you're serving, but doesn't quite have a conceptual understanding of what it is that you're trying to create. So in the con that like they're the right world, but they're not a master inside of that specific thing. Is that a better way to think about that? That's part of it. I would say it's enlightened idiot, by the way, is a, is a term of endearment, right? Idiot means common man. It means, I mean, when you look at the roots of that word and enlightened means they know something we don't. I'm an enlightened idiot. You're an enlightened idiot. We're all enlightened idiots in different circumstances. When I'm not in my bubble, when I'm not talking to you about if it's marketing or technology or teaching or whatever other thing that I might be a quote unquote expert in, then I'm an idiot, right? I'm the enlightened idiot. and, And I don't know as much about this topic as you do. 
there's a yeah. You know, I, I mentioned Randall Monroe before. He 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 wrote that book, Thing Explainer. He's a web comic. That's how he's famous. He, he wrote a he writes a comic strip called XKCD. And there's a great strip in there, a little little panel in there from not too long ago, where it's a couple of geologists talking to each other and it's saying, well, the average, you know, the average person probably only knows like two or three like complex like chemical arrangements or whatever it is. And then they mentioned a bunch of ones that you and I wouldn't know. And then they go, and of course this one, and of course that one. And in the subtext of that is, well, it's really easy, even if you try to kind of quote unquote, like dumb it down to overestimate what the average person's knowledge or interest is in your area of expertise. So that's the problem that we have over Albert. And that's why it's so important to bring in the quote unquote enlightened idiot to be like, what the hell are you talking about? Because then you're going to start to reach the levels of, of, of comprehension of empathy that is important for you to actually make that connection to actually persuade or inform or whatever it is you're, you're going for. Love that. Well, I love being an enlightened idiot. I think that's my job <laughs> is to be an enlightened idiot as the as the host of this podcast. <laughs> it's like get a chance to dive in with some incredible people and and I am I am a I am a less enlightened I'm I'm a less idiot on on simplicity now thanks to your book. So I have some different ways that I can do that. I think all of our friends hanging out with us today have plenty of different ways that they can experiment with making sure that we're crafting messages that really, really land with people that have been thought out that serve people at the highest level. So this has been so amazing, Ben. I have a question that I love asking guests at the very end, and then we can officially wrap things up. But I would love to find out, Ben, as somebody that has written this book, that has been a curious explorer of the world, what is curiosity? Or let me, let me, I've been rephrasing it slightly different. How has curiosity impacted your life? Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? So our little slogan in our agency used to be, we cur we would curiously and relentlessly pursue the things and ideas that move people. And that was the, that combination of being curious and relentless, I think gets you very far in a lot of different spaces. It, it's very boring to not be curious about stuff. Whenever I've encountered people that are not curious about anything like the world around them or this and that, I'm like, how do you, you know, I, I don't have the understanding of what that's like, right? Like <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's amazing. But I, I think that, you know, kind of living is, is an act of curiosity and, and it didn't, you know, it's as essential to me as, as oxygen. Mm, I love that. Amazing. Can't get more impactful than as, as essential to you as oxygen. So love that. Well, this has been amazing, Ben. Obviously people can go check out simply put why clear messages win and how to design them. We'll have that linked up in the show notes, but I know you have a newsletter. I know you have other places that you serve people. So maybe talk a little bit about where people can follow you and your work. Awesome. Thanks, Brandon. This has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate you having me on. If you want to get check out the book, go grab it wherever books are sold. You can follow me at bengutman.com. There's two T's and two N's in there. And if you go there, you can find, there's a free chapter you can download. There's a, some other resources. There's the newsletter or connect to me on LinkedIn. Send me a shout out. Let me know, you know if this work has made a difference for you. And I'd, I'd love to hear. Amazing. Well, I'm just going to really quickly have a conversation with you listening right now, as I always do. So whether this is the first time or the last, or like, you've heard me say this a bajillion times, and I don't get sick of saying it. And what I want to tell you is that I am so grateful for you. If you are listening to my voice right now, that means that you have hung on with Ben and myself for a little bit now, and you have 
found something in here that can absolutely change your life or somebody else's life. I said from the very beginning why this was so important for me and why I was so excited to have Ben on is because I believe my purpose is to create a more deeply connected world. And part of connection is making sure that the way that you're communicating is resonating with the people that you're sharing. So whether it was hearing Ben's stories from building that early relationship with his professor that got his start, or maybe it was some of those actionable things that we got into today or the funny stories about like Dr. Seuss and the constraints that he put on and how you can put constraints on things or the understanding of the happy warrior team and how that works or how you can use the drill build build method and so what to get clear and clear on your message. There's so much in here that can help you create more effective messages. And so my ask is that if you have heard something that has impacted you, you just take one second, you share this with one person that could find value in this and you have no idea the impact that that can create. So whether you choose to share that message or not, I appreciate you so much for listening. And Ben, any final things you want to say before we head off for today? Uh, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks so much again for having me. And, you know, I, I'm so happy to hear that this is this has been useful. Amazing. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate you. We'll talk to you soon, my friend.